check, check. Okay, I'm on. All right. Um, if our kids are set. If you guys have uh, Bibles, we're going to be spending most of the day in Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 8 and going all the way through Acts chapter 7. Um, we are in a series in Acts, and so this is a long text today, but it's going to be good. Um, I hope. <laughs> Please pray with me before we get started. Lord Jesus, I pray that through your word this morning, you would break up stony hearts, that you would encourage those of us who are, who are troubled, that you would comfort the afflicted, that you would, through your word, also challenge the comfortable. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I saw on the news recently that they found Ernest Shackleton's ship down in the Antarctic, that the, the Endurance. Anybody see this in the news? Well, did, Ernest Shackleton, we know the name. Ernest Shackleton is one of the great uh, explorers of the last you know, couple centuries. And this was a time when we really didn't know what was down at the bottom of the the planet, you know, no one had ever really been to Antarctica, so he had gone and, and, and landed there, but he was, uh, he was planning in 1914 a, another trip. It was called the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition, and what they were going to do is land on Antarctica and make it to the other side, to the ocean on the other side. That was their, that was their goal, and, and you can imagine uh, that, is, that is quite an adventure. <laughs> Um, it was famous, but, but they, they needed a crew uh, for the endurance, and they, they put out an ad in a London paper. It said this, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Now, who's not ready to go with Shackleton? Now, but he did get a crew, but you can imagine, like, this was a historic event, and they had a lot of applicants. But what if someone was like, man, Shackleton's the bomb. I want to make history. I'm in. But could we go someplace warm, coconutty kind of place, Barbados? Can I follow Ernest Shackleton, not to the Antarctic, but to, like, Bermuda or some such place? The answer would, of course, be, you can't do that. Why? Why can't you follow Shackleton to someplace warm and lovely? Because that's not where he leads, is it? A lot of the time, we have the understanding that we want to follow Jesus. A lot of people who want to follow Jesus and believe they are following Jesus want to follow Jesus to a life of comfort and success, but there's one problem with that. It's not where he leads. I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but the symbol of the Christian faith is not a couch or a cruise ship. It's a cross. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Remember, Luke and Acts are one book. He says, then, they, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Now, we might be having some cognitive dissonance right now because, wait, wait, wait. I've heard that 
that if I'm just a good enough believer in Jesus, that life kind of works out real nice. That I'm going to be very successful in my career. That I'll have plenty of money and all the relationships that I wanted. Everything will go nice and smooth. I, that's, that's what I've been told. Right? You may have heard of this. It's called the prosperity gospel or the American dream theology. It's this idea that, yeah, we're going to follow Jesus. We're going to follow Jesus to comfort and success. It's like not the cross. Now, there is kind of an... It's excusable, right? Because there is an army of Christian books out there that, that focus on one part of truth in the Bible, right? Like, here's a good way to manage your wealth according to the Bible. Here's some biblical principles to make relationships and marriage better, leadership principles. That's all true. But you know what? Following Jesus, like saying, well, I'm going to follow Christian leadership principles. That's true. But that is not the main point of what the Bible is teaching. And one of the issues with this is when we hear this message that if you follow Jesus, you're going to end up at comfort and success, is that when your life doesn't end up at comfort and success, you struggle in your career, you don't have all the money that you feel you need, you might say, well, why aren't things working out? Maybe I've displeased God somehow, right? Like, like the, 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 the overcoming Christian life is supposed to be everything works out, but not everything's working out. What's going on? Has God forgotten? Is God not real? But the problem is, is that we've got a misunderstanding of where Jesus leads and what it means to follow him. We need to follow Jesus to the cross. Why? Because God's a bummer and wants you to be miserable? No. It's because he leads us to something better than comfort and success. You notice what Jesus says there. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. Everyone who seeks to save his life is going to lose it. And those who lose their life will find it. He doesn't want us to be bummed. He doesn't want us to want to lead us to something worse, but to something better. Now, the, the first disciple that we're going to see in Acts follow Jesus all the way to the cross is famously Stephen, the first martyr of the church. I want to ask you a question. Stephen's going to lay his life down. Did Stephen not want a comfortable, successful life? Is he a different breed than us? Surely not. He's human like anybody else. What is it? What did he understand? Verse 8, man full of God's grace and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave as he, him as he spoke. First thing to notice about Stephen, let's remember that. This whole thing is guided by the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, 
We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place that is the temple and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses, the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So, so far, this is echoing the story of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus, in speaking the truth, being led, he roused opposition, and he was falsely accused and brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the, the top court in Jewish society in the first century. Okay, these were, this is like, this is like senators, congressmen, internet influencers all rolled into one. Okay, these are, the, these are the most august and famous, popular, respected people in that society. And what happens to Stephen? He's so filled with the Holy Spirit, he looks like an angel. This doesn't get explained, but there's only two people that this happened to previously in the Bible. One is Moses after meeting God on Mount Sinai. The other is Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay, so very clearly, God is with Stephen. I want you to remember that because we might think that everything goes wrong for Stephen here and we'd be mistaken. Look at, look at how, how his case begins. Chapter 7, verse 1. The high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory to appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now, there is about 60 verses worth of this. I'm, we're not going to go over the, this is the longest speech in all of Acts. We're not going to go in detail uh, through what Stephen said. But you know what he does? In the, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he retells Israel's history, and he sees it clearly. He points out two things to, uh, to, this, to these most august people in Jewish society. He points out a new view of history, that God sends saviors, and God's people reject the saviors. He points out that with Joseph, his brothers rejected him, and then he used Joseph to save his brothers. Well, those of you who are here for our Genesis series, you know that story. And then Moses, he sent Moses to deliver the people, and at first, the people rejected Moses. And he goes on and on through Israel's history to show this pattern that God sends them saviors, and they reject him. And then he brings, the, brings it to this conclusion in verse 50. Or verse 51. <laughs> this is not the way to win friends and influence people. He says, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. He's saying this pattern of God sending a Savior and the people rejecting him, you guys are doing the same thing. Now, is he doing this just to, 
speak truth to power and diss the system? No. We're going to see at the end of the text, he was trying to preach the gospel to them. That was his intent. Now, put this together with me real quick. Do you suppose that someone who could out-argue entire synagogues of people could have, under the power of the Holy Spirit, gotten out of the charges? All, all he would have to say is, no, we don't want to destroy the temple or change the law of Moses. I'm free. Uh, and that's what he could have done. It would have been pretty easy because the charges are demonstrably untrue. But there was something greater going on. Stephen, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, saw this as an opportunity to share the gospel with the Sanhedrin, to preach the word of God to the Sanhedrin and call them to repentance. What is the first thing that helps Stephen follow Jesus all the way to the cross? It's that Jesus leads us to greater purpose. He had a greater purpose than preserving his life. It was to share Christ. What is your place in the world? You ever thought about that? A lot of us have a view of the world that the center of the world are the famous people, the famous places, and the famous events. But when we look at Scripture, and Stephen points this out, God doesn't see history the way we see history. Does anybody, are any super nerds out there like me who remember the play and movie Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead? Yes, dorks unite. Okay, you might, those of you who are Shakespeare nerds recognize the names Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. They're, they're two characters who have like two lines in the play Hamlet, okay? They're like on stage with Hamlet for a moment, but the, the play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead focuses only on Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and like Hamlet's off in the background somewhere. Right? And so the, the play focuses on the sideshow, and they're just kind of like talking about nothing, playing games where they flip coins and stuff. Like a whole lot of nothing goes on over here. What if we've got history backwards? What if we view the world completely backwards? Because when we look at Scripture, where is God's attention? Where's God's attention in the late Bronze Age? It's on Abraham, on nobody, it's not on Babylon. It's not on Assyria. That was the center of the world then. In the book of Exodus, uh, I mean, in, in, at the end of Genesis, God's attention is not on Egypt. It's on the descendants of Abraham. Israel never becomes a very powerful, very wealthy nation, yet that's the center of God's attention. What is the center of God's story? It's Jesus. What was Jesus? He was a member of an occupied, oppressed people. He was a carpenter. That ain't a fancy job. He never held office. He never led an army. He never wrote a book. In fact, he died a shameful death. Yet that is where the center of God's attention is. That redoes everything, doesn't it? A lot of us, all of us, don't view ourselves at the center of what's going on in the world, do we? That's the people you've heard of. That's the people in the news. Those are the people with millions of followers or whatever. They're in the center. The best we can hope for is like a seat on city council. That's as, that's as high as we can shoot. And for most of us, we say, well, that's fine. I'm just not very important. My life isn't very important. And our lives just kind of float by us. 
our days just go by one after the other and we try and grab all the enjoyment out of them that we can and that's our plan <laughs> is that what you have planned for for your life is that how you're gonna spend your days because we feel it doesn't really matter what we do anyway and I'm just gonna curate my own world to the best of my ability another question for you are you sure you're not gonna reach the end of your days and regret that that was your plan What if there was an opportunity to actually be part of something that truly matters, the center of God's attention, which is the building of his kingdom? Would that be worth leaving behind the lure of success and comfort and following Jesus to the cross? So that at the end of your days, by following Jesus to the cross, you can honestly say, I don't regret a single day. I'm glad I spent my life like that. But it's hard. Following Jesus to the cross is not supposed to be an easy thing. And one of the reasons, one of the main reasons, if we're totally honest, is because we love approval. You love approval, I love approval. When you get a like on a comment, the dopamine hit, I'm, I need more. Maybe I could get some loves, or some retweets, or whatever people are doing these days. I'm sure my social media knowledge is out of date. Right? But not, none of us are truly as independent and immune to the need for approval like we think we are. Like, none of us are wearing parachute pants in here. At some point, we got the message, we will get disapproval if we wear parachute pants, and we dropped them for, for much less comfortable clothes. We are hugely motivated by the approval of others. And if someone gives us negative feedback, tells us we did a bad job, that sticks with you. Believe me, my, my days doing music, I remember my negative reviews. I remember all of them, but I don't remember their names. I do. <laughs> I'll get them back. No, <laughs> when Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't experiencing much approval. In fact, the entire city of Jerusalem, the leadership of Jerusalem, were united in their disapproval of Jesus. It didn't get more shameful. It didn't get lower in terms of approval than going to the cross in Roman society. And here's the deal. Think about what that means to follow Jesus not going to lead us to comfort and success. He's not going to lead us necessarily to much approval. That part of the deal is that you will come in for disapproval. Now, Stephen, when, when we pick up at verse 54, try and put yourself in his shoes. What is he experiencing when the, the most august people in his society, the people he grew up respecting, do this? Look at verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Now that's a, some sort of ancient thing similar to like, you know, rude gestures that we would have or expressions of anger and rage. But they're gnashing their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. What was that like to experience? You're standing surrounded by the Sanhedrin, these people you really look up to, and when you're done saying your piece, you don't even get to finish and go to the gospel part of like, you guys killed Jesus, but he died for your sin. He didn't even get that out. They've covered their their ears with their hands. They can't stand to listen to him. They're gnashing their teeth. They're red in the face. They're enraged beyond belief, and they rush him. What would it be like to be on the receiving end of that level of disapproval? Remember, Stephen had no idea he was going to make the Bible. For him, this was the end. This was it. This is how his life was ending, in humiliation, in shame, in condemnation. But what does he see? He looks up and sees a higher court. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He sees that there is something greater than all of this disapproval that's raining down on him, and it's the approval of God. Jesus leads us to God's approval. This really matters. Because if you live for the approval of human beings, A, you can never make everybody happy. B, you become a slave to human approval. You do whatever you're told to do. I want to be honest with you guys. I don't look good in skinny jeans. I'm too hefty, I'm too old, they're too uncomfortable. I don't like them, but I will still wear them. Here's why. If I wear them, I'm going to come downstairs and my wife is going to say, looking good in those jeans, hon. <laughs> and I will wear them out of the house with her, knowing that I am too old to wear them. And I will, I surely have disapproval pointed in my direction from people silently judging me and also me judging myself. But there's one opinion, the approval of which outweighs all disapproval put together, my wife. So I will wear them. Not often, but I will wear them. What allows us to say, you know what? Following Jesus is going to bring disapproval. If I'm truly faithful, at some point, someone is going to say, that is all wrong what you're doing. How am I going to be able to endure that? Me who needs approval. God doesn't call us to lay down approval. He, he calls us to look to a higher verdict, to himself. To say, I approve of you. Now, am I saying that you earn salvation through God? No, that's not what I'm saying. Am I saying that if you do the right thing, God loves you more? No, that's not what I'm saying. Salvation and God's love are on you before you ever uh, do anything in return. That's how it works. But when we do things that God says are good, the approval of God is on us. If you follow Jesus, 
you're going to meet with disapproval. You're going to be told that what you believe is toxic. You might be told that you're a bleeding heart Marxist. <laughs> you might be told you're on the wrong side of history. You might be told that you're not a real Christian. And sometimes the disapproval from within your own tribe is the hardest one to bear. Are we going to let that hold us back? Are we going to avoid it? Are we going to hold something back from God and say, okay, maybe I can negotiate the difference and get God's approval barely and get other people's approval lots and lots? Or are we going to follow Jesus to the cross? Not because God wants to lead us into scorn, but because he wants us to experience his approval. Now, is the message here that following Jesus to the cross is like, hey, just buck up and, and get yourself killed, right? Like, like, it's all loss and just take the loss because this life is well lost anyway. That's not, that's not the point at all. It's not calling us to simply lay down our lives. It's calling us to upgrade. In my, um, in my last semester of seminary, I, I was working feverishly on I did way too many classes, but I was working feverishly on these, on these really difficult papers, and, and we had a, this was 2011, we had like a 2006 MacBook, the old white one with the clamshell, and you know, there's like three keys that didn't work, so I just had to write without spaces. <laughs> Not really, that would be funny though. Uh, it was like the screen was kind of cracked and like, you know, coffee stains that somehow you couldn't get out, and my son had poured a whole cup of tea into it at one point. <laughs> He went like this, poor. He used to narrate whatever he was doing, throw. Uh, and, and so I was working away, and this is a, it was to the point where it only had like 30 minutes of battery life, and it just died and wouldn't turn back on. I was like, no, what have I done? And so I went to the Mac store, and they're like, well, and you know, we had no money, it's a seminary. Now I make tons as a pastor. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and so I took it to the Mac store, and they had to replace the hard drive. I was like, okay, well, I have no choice because I've got to graduate. And, um, and so they got it back after a couple of days, and, and I'm like, okay, I'm ready to get back to work. As soon as I start working again, black lines appear on either side of this thing, and I'm like, that's not good. <laughs> and they meet in the middle, and it's just like these black and white lines. And I was like, that's not supposed to happen. I, it wouldn't turn off. It wouldn't do anything. So I go back, and the manager was like, I'm so sorry. This thing is, I've never seen this before. This is one for the books. This thing is done. And I was like, <laughs> Boo -doo 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 -doo, you know. And he said, but tell you what, he takes out a brand new MacBook Pro, one of those $1,700 jobs. And he says, how about this? I said, I can't afford that. He's like, I know. Trade you. You give me that one, I'll give you this one. Would that work? I said, thank you for the computer <laughs> and the sermon illustration. <laughs> God does not call us simply to lay down our lives for nothing in return. It's, he calls us to greater life. Look with me at verse, uh, at verse 55. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, listen, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. By the way, it's very similar to what Jesus said uh, from the cross in the book of Luke. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus said the same thing from the cross. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He's not even mad. Why? He had a vision of God's glory. He saw, oh, that's, that's where I'm going. Yeah, these guys are going to end my temporary life, but here I'm seeing Jesus and God's glory. That's what waits for me. Jesus leads us not simply to death, but to eternal life. It's not a call to simply lay it down and pick nothing up. It's a call to an upgrade. Now, does that mean this life doesn't matter, that we're all just kind of marking time until, until we inherit eternal life? No, not at all. The writer C.S. Lewis once said, if you live for the next world, you get this one thrown into the deal. If you live only for this world, you miss them both. There's no greater freedom. There is no greater, uh, uh, there is no greater life to be had than to live knowing that eternal life from God awaits us. This is the nature of following Jesus. This is what discipleship looks like. That to wear the crown first, Jesus had to go to the cross. Think about what that means to be a follower of Jesus. That in order to experience resurrection, First, we have to die. That the greatest victory is total surrender. That in order to find myself, I've got to forget myself. There is, there is this built-in tension. We think, I'm going to aim for comfort. I'm going to aim, aim for success, and everything's going to work out. Amazingly, it never, ever does. Those of you who have experienced some success in your life, gotten to a great goal, know Man, that isn't what I thought it was going to be. That did not satisfy the soul. That was not enough. I've got to find something else now. The great irony is that true fulfillment, true fullness of life only comes in the willingness to lay it down and follow Jesus. Jesus leads us to eternal life. So we need to follow Jesus to the cross because he gives us, he leads us to greater purpose. He leads us to God's approval and he leads to eternal life. So what does it mean to follow Jesus to the cross? Do we all need to figure out a way to get ourselves killed? <laughs> if necessary. No. No, you're not out there trying to get martyred. Right? The, the goal isn't, hey, I need to find, find some way to lay down my life for Jesus. Will you lay down a luxury to be faithfully generous? Oh, I can't give anything. I can't give to the poor. I can't give to the church. My whole budget is maxed out. Are you willing to lay down one of your luxuries, one of your wants to be faithfully generous? Are you willing to lay down your autonomy and say, you know what? I have plans for my life. I have a way that I think I should live. And I've got to lay that down to follow Jesus. I've got to listen to what God says about how I should live. That is laying down one's life. Laying down your plans. Hey, I've got a plan that is all comfort and success <laughs> and wealth accumulation. 
Are you willing to lay that down? Laying down our expectations of God. A, a lot of the time we enter into relationship with God saying, I'm going to follow God if God blank, 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 blank. That's not how it works. That's uh, uh, not the nature of relationship with God. We are called to follow Jesus to the cross. Does this mean that like, you, you all need to fail at your jobs, right? Like, well, if success isn't the goal, I need to figure out a way to fail. No, no one sets out to fail at their job. That's not the point. But following Jesus to the cross does redefine what success means. We can't, at the end of our lives, say, well, I made it to the pinnacle of my profession and amassed a ton of wealth. The question is, how is what I did for work aligned with God's purposes in the world? And people have expressed curiosity about this. I'm like, hey, how does my job line up with what God is doing for the kingdom? I always offer this. Buy me a croissant. This is a requirement. I need a croissant. And we can discuss, you know, how your vocation, how your job, whether it's driving a truck, whether it's uh, making a piece of art, whether it's, uh, you know, pushing back the effects of the fall in, in medicine or government or what have you, how that how God is using that to build his kingdom. I'm happy to do it because I like croissants. No, I like you guys. I like you guys, and I want you to understand what God is calling you to do with the special gifts and professional skills that he's gifted you with. Does this mean, does laying down my life, does following Jesus to the cross mean I need to take a vow of poverty? No, but it does mean you can't make wealth accumulation a goal for its own sake. I, I hope you all ball out and tithe. It's a joke, guys. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> but the question is, okay, great, you got a 20% raise. Okay, you've bumped yourself up to a top income bracket. Who's happy besides you? Do the angels rejoice? Do the poor rejoice? Right? What are you going to do with it? What's it for? Why are you after it? That's what it means to follow Jesus to the cross. It's a, it's, it's a complete reorientation of our priorities. I'm not going to pursue a life of comfort and success. Comfort and success may come, right? Where, where, we, where and when we live, it's pretty darn comfortable. I'm not saying go make yourselves uncomfortable for no good reason. But if the path of following Jesus leads you to places of discomfort, if it leads you away, from success that we still follow. There was once a priest from El Salvador named Oscar Romero. Oscar Romero was martyred on April 24th, 1980. Now his story is very interesting. Some of you might have heard of him. He was, uh, he was elected Archbishop of El Salvador uh, when a civil war was beginning there. And, and the government backed him, right? The, the government of El Salvador. El Salvador is a very, very hierarchical society. There's like these few oligarchs that have all the money and everybody else is hungry, right? And uh, uh, you can imagine some people would complain about that. And when they did, the government would send death squads to their house. Now, Oscar Romero was backed by the government to become archbishop because he was a good conservative. But then something happened. A uh, priest named Rutilio, Rutilio 
I tried. Rutilio Grande was assassinated because he was speaking up against the violence of the government. And he was Oscar Romero's best friend. And so Oscar Romero went out to the little country church where his friend's body was laid. And he, he spent the day praying next to the body. And he looked at his body and he said, you know, if they did that to him for speaking out, I'd better do the same thing. And he began during his sermon, which was broadcast every week, to read out lists of the people the government had killed that week. His radio station was bombed twice. He rebuilt it both times. The, 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 the week before he was finally assassinated, he said in a radio interview, I want the one who murders me to know that I already forgive them. Because the thing was, he was not pushing for political change. He would preach the gospel. He would say, he would say this is what the government had done. And there are people out there with blood on their hands, and Jesus wants to forgive you, and Jesus wants a new El Salvador. And this is what he wrote just days before the day that he was assassinated. He said, I place under his loving providence all my life, and I accept with faith in him my death, that in spite of my sins I have placed my trust in him, and I will not be disappointed. Now you and I may not go out as solid as Oscar Romero, but we too are called to follow Jesus to the cross because he has something greater for us there. Please pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would call all of us out of complacence, that we would follow after Jesus, that we would be willing to go to the cross with you, Lord, that we would not deceive ourselves into thinking that we could live however we want and have whatever we want and still follow you. That instead we would obey the call of the gospel, that we would lay down all so that you can bless us far more greatly. In Jesus' name, amen. I understand that that was a challenging text. And a lot of us feel like, I don't have that in me. None of us do. Not one of us hears that and says, oh boy, God needs to grow us up. God needs to make us stronger. God needs to change my heart and your heart. And one of the ways that he does this is at this table. This table is for everyone who recognizes, I don't live up to that, but I know that Jesus died even for my lack of faith. So this table is for everyone who has believed on Jesus that he has done what needed to be done for us. Now the way that we're uh, going to do this is we'll start from the front, front row. You, you grab one of these and take it back to your seat. We'll take it all together. Um, we do have gluten-free options if, that's, if, the, if you need that. And um, if you have kids that are not yet admitted to the table, please still bring them forward uh, so I can pray over them. Please come. I actually didn't institute, my bad, my brain failed me, sorry. On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord took bread, 
and giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. In a like manner, he took the cup, saying, this, this is the blood of the new covenant, shed for the forgiveness of sin. Take and drink it all of you. Please come.